Last year, we began a series that opened the door to the beginnings of our faith. This year, we want to go even further back to the places and people that God used to introduce faith into our world. Once again, the series is called Origins. Well, good morning. It is so great to have you here. Thank you so very much. This is an exciting weekend for Northridge. It's the very first weekend we've ever been one church in four locations. Uh, This is an awesome weekend. This morning, for the very first time, Northridge Gross Eel opens its doors. Uh, all kinds of great things are going on over there. We hope to have you know, pictures for you next weekend, and it's exciting. I hope you'll be praying for that. Also, this weekend is the five-year anniversary of Northridge Celine, our very first church campus outside of Plymouth, so they're doing great. And Northridge Brighton is, the building continues to be renovated and looks like in the new year it'll be open and it's just exciting. And, you know, here at Plymouth, if you guys would get busy, good stuff would happen here too. That'd be awesome. Just kidding. I'm just so thankful for all of you who are here this weekend. And what really makes this weekend exciting is that we're starting a brand new edition of our Origins series. And this is Origins, the Old Testament edition. And this weekend, we begin with and Getty. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags and the wild goats. I'm standing in that place, En Gedi. All around this place is a desert. There's no way you can survive. And David was running from Saul. He had absolutely no provisions of water or food. And then he came here, which explains what he wrote in Psalm 63:1. Oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It was his experience physically. He had no water, he was thirsty, he had no food, he was hungry, and then God provided this En Gedi. And it's a simple picture. No matter what the desert of our lives, no matter how barren, just like this place, God can be our En Gedi, our living water.
I found that it's an amazing experience to stand where significant world events have actually taken place. Roxanne and I have had the undeserved privilege of being in some of the most significant places in the world as it relates to events of world history. I remember the time that we stood in Auschwitz and walked through that place of such horrific activity and such tragic loss. I I remember standing in Red Square in Moscow. I mean, I grew up as a child of the Cold War and the whole Soviet Union thing, and I remembered watching soldiers goose-stepping through Red Square and missiles going through and tanks going through and the premiers and Politburo of the Soviet Union being celebrated and, and it just seemed like such a far away mystical thing and then I stood in Red Square. We had the privilege of standing at the Berlin Wall and I was just a, just a real young kid when our president, John F. Kennedy, stood there and said, Ich bin ein Berliner, and, you know, identified with all people of Berlin, and it was a place where Ronald Reagan stood up and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down the wall. But it seemed like this faraway fairy tale kind of a place until we stood there. We got to go to Gettysburg, and Gettysburg, that place where just thousands and thousands of our fellow citizens of the past died trying to figure out what this country would ultimately stand for became real for me. The stories that occurred in those places came alive, became real. As I stood in the landscape where they unfolded, being there opened my eyes, it enlivened my senses, it engaged my emotions. It literally made the stories real for the first time. Well, the same is true with the Bible. Because you see, the Bible is a real story. So many approach it as if it's some kind of mythological principle book, principle book or a, uh, just a, a bunch of sayings of philosophy or some kind of other fictional tale. But it's not. It is a real story. And, and it comes alive when you experience the setting where it took place. I mean, when you actually stand in these places where God unfolded his stories, you realize the stories fit the land. Here... Where we live in the 21st century in America, it's like, it's weird. You can't picture those stories because they don't fit our landscape, our setting. But, but when you go there, you go, oh, I can see it happening. They fit the land. They begin to make sense. Well, that's what this series, Origins, is all about. It's our goal through video to introduce you to places where some of the greatest Old Testament stories unfolded. We want to help you, at least virtually, to experience a touch of them, to kind of stand in them so that they can come alive to you in a new way, so that the Bible can become what it's supposed to be to you, real, living, life-changing. And so, we look at these places. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 29 is the verse that I read in the opening video, and it simply says, David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. And I have to tell you, you know, I, I've read through the Bible a ton of times, and I'd encourage you to do it too. I've just read through it a ton of times, and I've read through this section without even stopping, without even blinking. It's like, yeah, he went up to the strongholds of En Gedi, let's get to the good stuff. 
until I stood in this place in Gedi, until I understood its context, its setting, and what it meant. Now, for those of you who really like to analyze the details of things, you need to know En Gedi is the combination of two words, the first being En, which means spring, and the other being Gedi, which means goats. And so it's literally the spring of the goats, or spring of the goats. Approximately 1,000 B.C., it was a couple of months back, as you know, uh, 1,000 B.C., David, who became King David, fled to this desert region, in En Gedi, and he was f- fleeing from King Saul. Though he had been faithful to Saul, Saul was jealous of him, wanted to kill him, and so this good young man was on the run, and he went to En Gedi. And what did he experience there? Well, you wouldn't know it unless you know the region of En Gedi. What he experienced was a barren desert, a hot, rocky, barren desert. In fact, that's all there is for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles around this thing. If you could have a shot of it, we've traveled in a bus through it. I mean, it's just desert, barren land, miserable. And that's what he experienced. Thirst, weariness, and discouragement. Though he was anointed as a king... He was running for his life. He was living in caves cut into rock cliffs. And as you walk up through the places that lead to En Gedi, you see caves all in these rocks, and that's where he lived. But I am telling you, the sweltering heat is amazing. I actually asked our team if we could turn the heat up to 120 degrees this weekend, but they said it wouldn't be a practical use of God's money, and that makes sense, I guess. But that's how hot it is. It is hot. And then imagine what these caves are like. Imagine. And there's no water anywhere around. And this was the place he was having to live. He wasn't staying in a Ritz-Carlton. He would have been glad to stay in a Motel 6. He was in a miserable, miserable location running from his life, for his life. And I have to tell you, you have to think about why God tells us this story. You have to think about it from David's perspective. And from David's perspective... This stuff didn't make sense. And you need to know, when we read these Bible stories, we see these great events of these people of faith, and and we think that they're different than us. They had advantages that we don't have. They had circumstances or abilities that we don't have. And it's not true. David was just like us. He saw all of these experiences from his own limited and very finite and very weakened perspective. And when he would look at what was going on in his life, it wouldn't have made sense. Think about it. He'd been faithful to God as a shepherd, nothing but faithful. And then he did what no other man in all of Israel would do, not even King Saul. He stood up to in the name of God and killed Goliath, the great enemy of the people of God. As a result of his faith and his actions, he became extremely popular among the Israeli people. They had songs about him, and yet, though he was popular and could have made a play for leadership, instead, he was a faithful servant to King Saul. But King Saul became jealous because King Saul's heart was in the wrong place, and because King Saul was disobedient, God decided that he needed a different king. He chose David. He actually sent his prophet Samuel to anoint David to be king. 
So all, everything's great. This guy was faithful. He was wonderful. He was celebrated. He's anointed king. And what's he doing right now? He's running and hiding for his life in one of the most miserable places you could imagine, a place with no provision, with no water, a place where it was difficult to stay alive. Now, before we go any further, can I just ask you to look at this through the lens of your own life? Doesn't this scenario of David sound just a little bit familiar to you? It does to me. It looks to me like it's the picture of our lives because more often than not, Though in the fairy tales we write and the great fiction tales we tell, life makes sense. When we really live life, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? It doesn't measure up to our dreams. It doesn't live up to our expectations. One plus one doesn't always equal two. It doesn't make sense. We know what it's like to be betrayed. We know what it's like to be on the run. We know what it's like to be in hiding. We know what it's like to be thirsty, weary, discouraged, and confused. We know what it's like when bad things happen to good people. We know what it's like when we're in David's situation. And quite frankly, I absolutely marvel at how David responded. Because he responded very differently than I do by nature. And this is why we like to think that he's different than us. He had advantages we don't have because he responds so differently than me. But the truth is he was just like me. He just responded in a way that, that led to better things because, you see, he didn't get angry at God. Now, can we just kind of cooperate here just a little bit this weekend? Have, have you ever, when life was just falling apart and not making sense, have you ever, when you were experiencing the world as it so often is, as a barren desert, when you were really, really thirsty for more out of this life, have you ever, ever been just a little bit angry at God? I sometimes pray angry. David didn't get angry. He didn't get bitter with life. And so often we can get so bitter with life and so negative towards life. He didn't give up. He kept persevering. He kept staying faithful. He kept trusting. In fact, he kept seeking God. Here in the desert where he was seemingly abandoned, he proved beyond words that he had faith in God. You, you need to know, because so often we see history as all real close together and then our lives are separated from it. You need to know that, that Moses, the great prophet who wrote the first five books of the Bible, Moses, the great prophet who you know, was used to lead Israel out of Egypt, Moses, that great prophet, was as distant to David's life as David is to ours, far away. From David's perspective, he was thinking, you know, oh yeah, sure, God parted the Red Sea when the impossible was going to, oh sure, where is the God who provided food in the wilderness? Where, where is the God who protected Moses' life? But see, that's how I would have reacted. That's not how David reacted. Even though Moses was nowhere close to David's period of time, even though David had never seen God interact with his life like he did with Moses, David believed in the God of Moses. David believed that the God who protected Moses from King Pharaoh who wanted to kill him could do the same for him with King Saul. David believed that the God who provided water from the rock in the wilderness for Moses and millions of people could and would do the same for him. He knew that God wasn't his problem. God was his provider. 
And he knew it by faith, not by experience. If God had been this way with Moses, God would be this way with him. He knew God didn't change. The problem is, very often we don't have that kind of faith, do we? Very often we say, God must have changed because he's not treating me like he treated David or Moses. We see God as the problem very often. He could protect me if he wanted to, but he's not. He could change circumstances for me if he wanted to, but he's not. He's the problem. David knew that God wasn't his problem. God was his provider. And as a result, he experienced God's provision in the middle of a rocky, barren desert that went on forever. God led him to En Gedi, an oasis of living water. And I have to tell you, on the surface, there's no explanation for this. There's no way the video can communicate it to you. There's no way you would have sat here for long enough for us to show you how big this desert was and how miserable it was. We just show you these springs of living water. But I'm telling you, on the surface, there's no explanation for the water. There's none. I mean, it's miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of rock, no water anywhere. And all of a sudden, you walk up, and there's this, like, waterfall of fresh... It's just crazy. Where does it come from? Well, as it turns out, David would have never known this, but... It's rainwater from 45 miles away or so in Jerusalem that probably fell years and years and years ago and seeped into the underground systems of how this earth works, into aquifers, and and it finally, in some bizarre way, surfaces right here in the middle of this desert, in the middle of nowhere. Do you know what happened for David in the middle of the barren desert? God provided water from a rock. The God who provided water from a rock for Moses now was providing water from a rock for David. Because God's not the problem, God's the provider. Here's what this place teaches us. Where there is no possibility of provision, God can still provide. You know that God doesn't need the possibility of provision to provide because God is the one that can create from nothing any provision we need where there is no way out, and there was no way out for David here. I mean, the king and all of his resources and all of his people were trying to kill him. Where there is no way out, God can make a way out. The story of En Gedi teaches us when life is hopeless, God gives hope. You see, the reason we don't experience God providing when there is no provision and God's way out when there is no way out. The reason we don't experience hope when there is no hope is because unlike David, we don't trust the God of hope. Unlike Moses, we don't trust the God of hope. Because you to experience what only God can do, you have to trust in the God who does it. And this is the story of En Gedi. Here's the truth that I want you to get this weekend. It's a life-changing truth, though simple. God is our En Gedi. God's our En Gedi. This is not just a place. This is a picture of what God is, of who God is, of God, what God wants to be in our lives. And since Jesus is God, we can say Jesus is our En Gedi. In fact, the Bible often uses, you may know or not, water as a metaphor for God. In fact, it's his name. Look at Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel. When there is no hope, he's hope. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. 
because they have forsaken the Lord. And then he calls them by a name. The spring of, what are those last two words? That's God's name. You're the spring of living water. You're the spring of living water. Do you know why Moses knew that God could bring water out of a rock in the wilderness when there was no hope, when there was no way, when there was no provision? Because God himself is the streams of living water. And where God is, streams of living water can flow. It was simply a picture of his faith. What do you think happened with David when he was walking through the wilderness, this barren, deserted place where there was no water? What do you think he thought of when he saw En Gedi? He said, God is here. He's the streams of living water. In John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Jesus makes this clear. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. He was at a well with a woman, and he was just drinking regular physical water. And he says, you drink this, you're going to have to come back and get some more tomorrow. But those who, those who drink the water I give, he says, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in that person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What water does Jesus give? The streams of living water. What water does Jesus give? He's introducing us to God. The streams of living water, the oasis of life, the source of all provision. Look at John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. On the last of the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. What's he saying? You come to me and God will reside in you. The one who provides where there is no provision will be in you. The one who makes a way out where there is no way out will be in you. The one who gives hope in hopeless times will be in you. Streams of living water will flow from within you. Here's the reality. No matter what barren desert our life is engaged in, no matter what desert-like circumstances we may be experiencing in our lives, God has provided an oasis of living water that's always available to us. Jesus is our En If you're thirsty, it's because you're not drinking in Jesus. And so here's the application. The application is really simple. When you're thirsty, and we're thirsty quite often, and we prove it by the way we live and what we're pursuing and what we're wanting and what we're choosing. When we're thirsty, we need to go to En It only makes sense. And I'm going to tell you, you don't have to tell people this when they're in a desert. When you're in a desert, it, it's a funny thing. When we take these groups to Israel and we, we put them in these barren, deserted lands, we really discover the volume of whining possible. It's an amazing thing. And what's weird, it's like it takes minutes, not hours. This isn't like David being there forever. This is like they're in an air-conditioned bus with Wi-Fi, all the water they want. They get out, they walk three steps, and they go, I can't believe you brought us here. I know, and you paid to come. Isn't that awesome? You know, it's like, it's an amazing thing. And so, I mean, they're just hot and they're sweaty and all this different stuff. And you don't have to tell them when there's water that they really need some. 
They go right to it. But you know what's really, really, really sad? The same is not true spiritually in our lives. We are so thirsty all the time. And we're trying to fill our thirst with such messed up things while all the while, and Getty is there. God is there. He can bring streams of living water out of any rock we're experiencing because he's the streams of living water. You know what the real problem is? We know when we're thirsty physically, but most of us really don't think about how thirsty we are spiritually. I have to, I have to remind myself that I'm thirsty when I'm making wrong choices. What's driving me when I'm doing the wrong things? And, and do you know what the signs are of our spiritual thirst? There are a lot of them. When I'm spiritually thirsty, I start losing faith. My ability to trust God, my ability to really believe starts diminishing. I start seeing the circumstances being bigger than my God. I, I, I start losing faith when I'm spiritually thirsty. Do you? When I'm spiritually thirsty, I, I start losing my strength. I mean, during good times, I've got more strength than, you know, any one person deserves. I mean, good times, yeah. But when everything's working against me, I, I just want to cave. I'm thirsty. When I'm spiritually thirsty, I lose joy. It's funny, even physically we know this. I mean, it's so weird. And I, I'm being serious. It's like... People go from miserable to happy in two seconds when, when the circumstances change. When you come out of the heat and get into the bus in Israel, they go, yeah, and all of a sudden they're singing and all this different stuff. I said, where'd all the cussing go? I mean, seriously, it's, we take very interesting people to Israel with us. So it's like the, the joy factor. When you're not thirsty anymore, there's joy. Same thing is true spiritually. And you know, it's really sad to me. I look over the landscape of all those who call themselves Christ followers and very few have a consistent dose of joy. It's a sign that they're thirsty. Which shouldn't be possible if we're really experiencing he who is the streams of living water. It means that our words very often betray the reality we sing about Jesus, but we don't drink in Jesus. When I'm spiritually thirsty, I, I lose contentment and purpose and meaning and grace and focus. I, when I'm really thirsty, my focus turns entirely to my own need. I'm not thinking of other people. When I'm really, really thirsty, I start complaining about my circumstances instead of having compassion for others and theirs. When I'm thirsty, I start feeling like I should compromise my integrity to quench my thirst. I lose passion. When I'm thirsty, I have that sense of emptiness. I begin desiring and even doing the wrong things. Because you see, when I'm spiritually thirsty, the pull of what I need is greater than my faith in the one I need. And I mess up. Can I ask you, have you ever been spiritually thirsty? Are you spiritually thirsty right now? When you're thirsty you need to go to En Gedi. The reality is that all of us will experience times like David, every single one of us, when we're spiritually thirsty, when we're on the run, when we're disappointed with life, when we're feeling empty, every one of us is going to do this. Too many of us think that when we know God, we won't know the desert. Wrong. 
Knowing God doesn't change the reality of this world. We are going to experience the barrenness, the difficulty, the frustration of this world. That's not an issue. The problem is that when we're thirsty, very often we tend to go to the wrong places and look to the wrong things to quench our thirst. That's the problem. We turn to the wrong kind of waters. We turn to the wrong thing. We, we follow mirages instead of the real thing. I mean, where do people tend to go when they're thirsty? Well, there's a great picture of it. The whole Bible story unfolds in a place of pictures. And, and when you're standing there at En Gedi, it's very interesting. When you're facing one way, you're on the north side, you're, you're facing these streams and these waterfalls of fresh water coming out of the rock. It's bizarre. It's unbelievable. But when you turn around, look at what you see. It's a beautiful picture. This is right there from En Gedi. That's the Salt Sea. And I'm going to tell you, that is a gorgeous picture. I, I have to be honest with you. I've taken far more pictures of the Salt Sea than I've taken of En Gedi. I mean, En Gedi is a little waterfall, a little stream. The Salt Sea is this huge thing. That's gorgeous. And it's a picture of where people tend to turn, where people tend to go when they're thirsty. Do you realize it's at the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, that they've built all the hotels? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. That's where the businesses are. That's where the restaurants are. That's where the rich people go. That's where the communities are. It's at the Salt Sea. Do you know what's at En Gedi? A stream. When we, we like to go early, we go early. We go in, we're the first in. The only thing there when we get there, only thing, animals. Why? Because animals are smarter than people. God said, go to the ant. Because we can learn wisdom from the ant. We're so foolish sometimes. Animals are all around in Getty. They're drinking and all that. Why? Because animals know there's nothing at the salt sea for them. If they want to survive, they need fresh water. But the people all around the Dead Sea. It's a picture of our world. People value and pursue all the wrong things and it leaves them lifeless. You see, the Dead Sea looks like life. I mean, it's a beautiful picture. The Dead Sea looks refreshing. It looks satisfying. It looks like the people are happy there. It looks like it will bring us everything we're looking for. It's just that it doesn't fulfill its promise. And why do people tend to make this mistake? I mean, why do they choose the Salt Sea, the the Sea of Death, over... And Getty, why do they do? Why do we do that? Well, it's simple. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Why do we turn to the wrong places and look to the wrong things? Because we go by what it appears to be instead of what it is. It just appears that Bill Gates has everything we need to be happy. Except... Bill Gates didn't find happiness in what he has. If he's going to find happiness, it's not going to be from that. The Israelites had access to the living water of God. 
It's who he is, streams of living water. But they rejected him for the salty waters of the false gods of the other peoples of that day. He, they rejected him for idol worship. And they rejected him for the pursuit of their own selfish and personal desires. And you know what the result was? Just read the Old Testament. They were always thirsty. Always needy. Always desperate. Always living below the potential that God gave them. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. It just says it straight out. God's talking. My people have committed two sins. The first sin, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. The second sin, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Simply saying, they've forsaken me and they're trying to meet their own needs. They're trying to create a water themselves. They're trying to control their own existence. And that's, that's us, isn't it? Forsaking him, the streams of living water, because we think this way is going to make us happier. We do the same thing. God has provided an oasis of living water at all times, no matter what desert we're living in. God is always present and always available, yet often we're still in a desert as if there's no water. Seeking fulfillment in other things instead of seeking him. And here's what we need to realize, and I hope this sentence you'll let seep into the very fabric of how you think and feel. Whatever we long for other than God and his word will always leave us thirsty as if we're drinking salt water. You know that from experience. If I could just get a different job, then I'd be happy. How you doing? If I could just have a different house, You know what I've learned? If I could have a different house, I'll just be miserable in different ways. Some of you are thinking, if I could just get a different spouse. Some of you have tried. If I could just get different kids. Some of you are thinking right now, if I could just go to a different church. See ya. You know? We think that these things will satisfy our thirst, but they won't. Because whatever we long for other than God and his word will leave us thirsty. You see, the junk of this world looks beautiful from a distance. Just like the salt sea. It really does. It's one of the great sights in Israel. But it doesn't bring refreshment. It promises to quench our thirst, but it only magnifies it. And you know, that's the story of Adam and Eve. They were living in the paradise of the streams of living water. And they thought they needed more. And in so doing, they lost everything and thirst began. It was David's problem when he sinned with Bathsheba. And it's our problem when we turn from him as our water to other things. God clearly warns us about this. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Don't love the world or anything in the world. That's the salt sea. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Those who turn to the salt sea find it to be temporary, unsatisfying, and ultimately leads to death. But those who turn to En Gedi, Jesus is our En Gedi, experience life forever. Uh, The problem isn't that you experience the tough parts of life. We all do. 
The problem is that very often you turn to and look to the wrong things and people and places. But here's the answer to that problem. When we're thirsty, we need to go to the right places and look to the right things. I mean, it just makes sense. And what are the right places? What are the right things? Well, when we're thirsty, we need to turn to God himself. This is the whole point of the Bible story. You don't have to go to Israel and stand at En Gedi to figure this thing out. Your life experience should tell you. When we're thirsty, we need to turn to God himself. Look at Psalm chapter 42, verses 1 and 2, written by the sons of Korah, but it just absolutely illustrates all of what life should be. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, for true streams of living water. And I'm telling you, I have this picture at En Gedi. I mean, animals coming through the wilderness and just being thirsty and then all of a sudden having this fresh water and being able to lap it up. The desperation for life that comes with water. And the psalmist says, we should have that kind of desperation for God because without him we're thirsty and hungry and empty. Look what David himself says in Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. I mean fervently, zealously. You're my priority in life. Why? Because my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I can see him sitting in that cave, sitting in the desert region going, I need you more desperately than I need water. I can see him at En Gedi lapping in the water and realizing that his physical thirst paled in comparison with his desperate need for God. And this is why God was pursued so fervently by David. Why don't we learn our lesson from him? We pursue so much, so fervently, so zealously. We give ourselves with high energy, with high priorities to all the wrong things that don't satisfy and we stay thirsty. When all the while, all we have to do is turn to God the streams of living water. What are the right things and the, the right places to turn to? Well, we need to turn to God's word when we're thirsty, to God's word. You might not know this, but God's word is pictured by water. Look at Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. God's word is water, of course. Look it, if God is the streams of living water, when he speaks, what's he speaking? Streams of living water. His word is an oasis of life. That's why the truth can set us free. When we're thirsty, we need to turn to God himself. We need to turn to God's word, and we need to turn to God's people. The church. Look at Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. God says it. And let us consider how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds from being thirsty and selfish to being overflowing and unselfish. And how do we do that? Don't give up meeting together. That's what some do. But let us keep getting together and encourage one another, refreshing one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching, refreshing one another. Isn't that what living water does? I mean, it only makes sense that if he's the streams of living water, that we need to go to him. If he's the streams of living water, we need to turn to his word. If he's the streams of living water, when his people get together, refreshment will flow. And it says all the more as the day is approaching, of course, because you see, you can't store up God's living water. You can't put it in cisterns and keep it. 
It's like manna in the desert. It's only good for that moment in time and then you need to drink more and drink more. We need to go to it daily. Some people try and store it up. It's like you go, you know, I'm really into church. I go like every three, four weeks. Awesome. I bet you eat more than that from looking around. We need it daily. You see, when we go to the right places and look to the right things, we experience living water. It turns our barren and weary and thirsty lives into an Engedi. You see, our life is pictured by that barren desert, but it can be pictured by Engedi when we turn to God. When we do experience daily refreshment in God, we find our strength again. We find our faith growing instead of diminishing. We find our joy expanding. We find our passion. We find our focus. We can com- have compassion on others in their circumstances instead of just be complaining about our desperate circumstances. I mean, our lives start filling up when we're drinking in from the streams of living water. A great example of this. What can a life be when that life is never driven by thirst but always drinking at the streams of living water? What can that life be? It's an easy answer. That life can be Jesus. Because that's who Jesus was. Do you realize the reason Jesus never, ever was dictated in his life and choices by thirst, but instead by his love for and compassion for God? The reason was he was always drinking in the living water. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 35. When you're thirsty, you should turn to God himself. You should turn to God's word. Mark 1, 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. You know what's interesting about Jesus? He didn't wait until he was overcome with thirst to drink. He started drinking early in the morning. And he drank all day long. And he didn't just drink from God himself and from God's word. He also drank by hanging out with God's people, with God's church, so to speak. And you can see that in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 and 32. He wanted to be in solitary places with these people where they could refresh one another and he could refresh them. Here's what we need to know. To follow Jesus, to really follow him, we need to daily come to our Engedi to our streams of living water, to God himself. When we really follow Jesus, we will every single day come to our living water. If we're going to experience life like it was designed to experience, then we're going to have to come to the living water. And before we can do anything else or take any action steps of any kind on this, we have to, for the first time, come. You see, the two sins that all human beings commit, all of us have, is we forsake the streams of living water, we forsake God, and then we seek to build our own cisterns and quench our thirst with the things that we can produce. And it just doesn't work. Some of us manage a little bit better than others, but we all know deep in we're just thirsty. But Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. 
And I believe there are people here right now, you're hearing this, you're listening, or you're watching this, and you know you're just thirsty. It's time to come to Jesus. And I want to encourage you to, as we bow in prayer, just for a moment before I finish the talk, I want to encourage you to take my words in this prayer and make them your own. So would you bow with me in a word of prayer and in your hearts, if you're ready to take this step to God, just say, God, I confess it. I have forsaken you, the only source of true water. And I have sought to build my own cisterns, supply my own need. And I failed. I've sinned against you. But I believe that Jesus is my living water. Jesus, I trust your death on the cross to forgive my sin and failure. And I trust your resurrection to give me new life, life to the full. Save me in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just prayed with me, just before I finish the talk, I want to encourage you, please let us know. We've actually put together a little letter that will help you know some next steps that you can take in building your relationship with God, but we have to know you prayed with me. And so in the program we gave you in all of our live services at all four of our church settings is a connection card. You just rip it out, it's perforated, and then fill it out so we can get the information to you. But at the bottom, check that circle where it says, today you prayed for the very first time to trust Jesus, to step into this relationship, to come to the living water. And when you're leaving all of our gathering spaces, there are boxes, and just throw it in there, and then we'll do the rest. We'll send this information to you. And if you're watching online, just hit the what next button, and we'll do exactly the same thing for you. Now, when you do experience the living water, there are some action steps that you should take. When you experience the living water, when you really come to Jesus and start drinking him in and experiencing him, the very first thing you need to do is you need to apply it, apply the water, apply the truth to your lives. Now, it's an interesting thing. You can be thirsty, 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 thirsty. You can walk up to En Gedi there at the source of living water and you can die Unless you do what? There are 15 people who are really with me right now. (laughs) Unless you drink it. The truth is there are people swimming in the truth of the living water and hearing the truth of the living water and singing about the truth of living water and they're still thirsting as if there's no water because they're not applying it to their lives. James chapter 1 verse 22, don't just merely hear the word of truth and deceive yourselves as if that's enough. Do what it says. So many people, people, so many times people come to a setting like this and they listen and, and they go to lunch afterwards and they start rating the service. Well, I'll give that a three. Really? That's awesome. Thank you very much. That's great. My wife usually gives me a one and a half, so that's awesome. You, you rate the service. You know what? If it's a lousy service, but there's a truth in it, and you apply it to your life, you'll change forever. If it's a great service, and all you do is talk about it, and you never drink it in, it will mean nothing to you. Apply it. When we experience a living water, 
We need to not just apply it to our own lives, but we need to share it with others. We need to share it with others. You know what I found? Human nature is an interesting thing, and I abound with human nature. Do you know what happens when we find a place like En Gedi? Do you know what happens? Do you, do you know why almost no one is at En Gedi and everyone's down at the salt sea, you know, floating around like a bunch of humpback whales? Do you know why that's what's going on there? Because when people find a beautiful place like En Gedi, they want to keep it to themselves. They don't want to fight the crowds. They don't want to fight the masses. They don't want other people coming and spoiling their private little oasis. They don't tell anyone. Most people don't know it's there. Do you realize a lot of churches and a lot of believers in this world do the exact same thing with the living water? Did, did you know a lot of churches and a lot of believers turn their church into a private oasis for them, for their families to enjoy, but they keep it secret from the people they work with, from the people that live in their neighborhood, from the people, and they keep it a secret because they don't want to invite those bad people into this place and mess them up. Do you realize that the reason Jesus came to give us living water wasn't so that we can have a private oasis, but it's so that we could share the living water with the rest of the people who are drinking the wrong stuff in this world. We need to share him. Do you realize that the barren desert world that we live in can be turned to an Engedi if we just keep spilling the living water out? We have a mission at Northridge Church. It's to wake the world up to Jesus because when they wake up to Jesus, when they experience his love and experience his truth and get involved in that journey, do you know what happens? They become people of grace instead of people of hatred. They become people of light instead of people of darkness. They start turning this back into a paradise instead of a barren desert. We need to be sharing the living water. So who is it in your life? What one person in your life most needs living water? They're most thirsty right now. Why not share Jesus with them this week? Why not invite them to come and experience the reality of our origins and where our faith come? Why not tell them about the living water so that they can live for the first time? The truth, Jesus is our En Gedi. When we're thirsty, we need to go to En Gedi. And it's my prayer that this week, every week for the rest of your lives, no matter how barren the world around you is, that you'll be drinking in from that En Gedi the streams of living water. And if you do, life will be everything you long for it to be. Have a great week. Thanks for being here.